Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 27th, 2013. Ah, Looking forward to a good weekend. A little bit of time off. Haven't had a lot of that lately. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and check things in context. Now, Normally what I try to do here at Fighting for the Faith, and I I talk about this from time to time, is that every episode has a theme. You know, yesterday I revealed the theme. Oftentimes, most of the times, I don't reveal the theme. You can kind of inductively figure it out if you just kind of piece the pieces together and go, okay, that's what he's talking about. Um, You can do that. But from time to time, we have episodes that do not have a theme. It's because I can't figure out how to get all the pieces to work together into some coherent theological thing. And so they're like potpourri or stinking pod episodes. This is going to be one of those types of episodes. So if you are a listener, avid listener of Fighting for the Faith and you like figuring out what the theme is, today ain't got one. So you don't need to <laughs> bang your head against that wall. There's there's nothing that connects all of these things except for you know probably the fact that I want to talk about these different things. And I, I couldn't figure out how to coherently work these into stuff. And if I sat on them, then I wouldn't end up talking about them. So you get what I'm saying. So with that, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode. I have no idea how long today's episode is going to be. And you'll notice that Fighting for the Faith is one of those programs that doesn't have a fixed time. Uh, We go until I'm done. (laughs) That's the nice thing about batting cleanup on my own uh, radio station is is that I could cheat a little bit. And plus, you know, just kind of, you know, behind the scenes thing – I don't like the uh, the hard and soft breaks that are required in traditional radio, and uh, and so since I own Pirate Christian Radio, I decided that uh, I wouldn't uh, put those hard breaks in, in as many of them, so that it would give me more time to have good content in the uh, in the heart of the program and not have to have those constant commercial breaks. You, you get what I'm saying here. This is one of those things when I'm listening to radio, it it always bugs me that you know just as uh, somebody I like listening to gets really rolling on a subject, next thing you know. You know, they got to go to a break and it's like, eh. so 
I, with all of that, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode. Now, we're going to start off with an email segment. I have an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley that I would like to read. He has weighed in on the Spurgeon quote. Um, uh, yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I demonstrated that uh, Charles Spurgeon did not offer us any wisdom warning us against textual criticism. That's actually not true at all. What Spurgeon was doing was uh, warning us about and giving us wisdom regarding higher criticism, which is a completely different animal altogether. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the difference of, you know, um, you know, somebody who claims to be an acupressurist, kind of, you know, somebody who's into acupuncture and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to an orthopedic surgeon. Okay, textual criticism would be the orthopedic surgeon. Higher criticism. Um, you know, acupuncture type person. So you get what I'm saying? Way different <laughs> things here. And that kind of tips my hands is that I am not a, uh, a somebody who believes in the basic premises behind Eastern so-called medicine. So that being the case, you know, I, I may have offended, you know, a third of my audience. I don't know. But the, the point is this, is that they are textual criticism and higher criticism are as far as the East is from the West. And to claim that uh, Spurgeon was warning us about textual criticism is, is, is absolutely, you know, it's ludicrous. And so uh, Pastor Charmley decided to send me an email and weigh in as well. And he agrees with my assessment that to, to claim that Spurgeon was warning us about higher uh, textual criticism is not even remotely close to the historical facts. So I'll be reading a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon. Then we've got a couple of, uh, you know, kind of weird things we're going to uh, launch into. Um, we've got a, a Rob Bell update. Rob Bell apparently is going to be appearing. Uh, they've already recorded it. He's going to be appearing on Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday on November 3rd. And, uh, oh, I can hardly wait for this, but uh, we'll be reading uh, the uh, uh, Christian Post's coverage of this particular news story. And then we'll, just, we'll ask one of the questions that, uh, I, you know, that uh, needs to be asked from time to time. What is a true prophet and what is a false prophet biblically? How would we know the difference between a true prophet and false prophet? And then we'll use a real example. I have video, actually audio that I'll be playing, of a video of vintage Todd Bentley. This is Todd Bentley with hair. This is Todd Bentley without tattoos all over himself. So this goes back some years, uh, claiming that God had told him that there's going to be a revival that breaks out in Finland. And, uh, well, that hasn't happened. So what does that make Todd Bentley? Mm-hmm. A false prophet. But we'll we'll kind of walk through the different passages here on how you can tell who is a true prophet as opposed to a false prophet. And uh, and then in uh, the second half of the the uh, this, uh, of the first hour, we're going to uh, be listening to Patricia King interviewing her pastor. Now, I know from time to time I get emails, you know, you know, and it doesn't happen that often, but over the years I've received emails from people asking me, where does this woman go to church? Who's her pastor? Well, that, that question is going to be answered today, and you're going to find out that birds of a feather flock together. So, you know, you know, those of you thinking that maybe, just maybe, Patricia King has a pastor who's going to rein her in and, and uh, get this woman theologically under control, um, <laughs> you know, 
no, that's not going to happen. And then, uh, you know, so we'll spend a little bit of time listening to Patricia King talking to her pastor. And I might even play a portion of a recent sermon uh, by her pastor so that you can uh, get an idea of uh, where he is on the the so-called theological radar. And then uh, when we get to hour number two, we're going to end the week off with a good, and I mean really good, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon. And uh, we're going to be listening to him preach uh, through uh, portions of Genesis chapter 6. That would be the flood account. And uh, the name I think the name of the sermon is Judgment and Mercy. And it, it I mean, Pastor Charmley just does a fantastic job of law and gospel in this. Sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and preaching Christ even out of Genesis 6. And he does just a fantastic, stellar job worth passing along to you. So that's what we're going to do for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Again, there is no theme. No, if there, a theme emerges, it is quite by accident. So I just want to let you all know that. And with that, we'll dive into the program proper. And since we're starting off with an email segment, that requires us to do this. Our email today comes from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley out there in the United Kingdom, Hanley Stoke on Trent, and the subject line reads Spurgeon and Textual Criticism. Pastor Charmley writes and says, Dear Chris, <clears throat> since I did my seminary dissertation on theological change in the Free Church of Scotland between 1843 and 1900, I watched with mingled horror and frustration the foolishness coming from certain quarters. There is no distinction being made between what has been called the subjective criticism and actual textual criticism. What went, what went by the name of higher criticism in Spurgeon's day was very largely the effort to discover the prehistory of the biblical text. For instance, speculation as to what happened before the earliest actual manuscripts we have. Of course, uh, of course, this of course meant creating imaginary uh, source texts such as J E D P and all of that lark by the procedure of imagining that the biblical texts were created in a manner no book known to man ever was, i.e. piecing together a sort of patchwork quilt of bits and pieces from works by men and maybe women of widely different views into a whole that somehow manages to give the impression of a coherent narrative despite all of that. This, of course, differs as night from day from the painstaking task of sorting through actual existing readings to determine which is the one that Paul originally wrote down. I expect it is a lot more fun as well since reading A.S. Peake's work on the book of Revelation in which Peake effectively argued that he could have written Revelation much better than John and that after all John did not write it but the whole community of Johns or something like that. I find myself even more convinced that the so-called higher criticism Peake taught at the University of Manchester no less is wholly without value. Funnily enough, before I read Peake on Revelation, I did not think my view of that sort of subjective and speculative criticism could fall any lower. 
and then it did, which goes to show that the truth is stranger than fiction at times. I have, I suspect, forgotten more Victorian Heider critical theories than those claiming Spurgeon's support for an entire rejection of textual criticism ever knew, and the shelves of my study, which surround, surround me on every side, bear eloquent witness to that fact, for I have two shelves of Hartley lectures, all read, and all but three read as well, and such esoteric works as Hengstenberg on the genuineness of the Pentateuch, Thomas Whitlaw's Old Testament Criticism, and Principal Rainey's The Bible and Criticism, not to mention A.S. Peake's Critical Introduction to the New Testament, which is occasionally good for a laugh, for it was published in 1909, and certain manuscripts, dis, dis, manuscript discoveries since that date have made his speculation seem rather foolish. Thus, I am as fully equipped as it is possible for me to be, though others can be maybe and may be better equipped in their own way, to distinguish between the artistic science of textual criticism and the vain speculation of the critics who, whilst professing to treat the Bible like any other book, treated it in a manner that no other book ever has been and that no book should be for the simple reason that no book has been or could be produced in the manner that they imagine the biblical books to have come into existence. Well, it appears I've been reading too much G.K. Chesterton on a sunny Friday afternoon, but I hope this email communicates something. Pastor Charmley, great email and good points. Um, you know, and just kind of punctuating uh, what I brought up on yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, that textual criticism is a science, and it requires objective evidence and manuscripts and painstaking work. Uh, being able to read these manuscripts and compare them one to another and uh, in catalog and figure out what to do with copyist errors, spelling errors, and uh, other things in order to get back at what the original autograph said. This is, a, this is something that is done objectively with evidence, whereas the uh, fancies of the higher critics really, I think, fall into the category what we see in the book of Romans of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, those who are looking for a way to cast doubt on the Word of God in order to undermine its authority so that they don't have to believe what it says or, even worse, obey what it commands. Great email, and thank you for your scholarly assistance. It is greatly appreciated. Moving along. That's right, it's time for a Rob Bell update. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down. Faster than a cannonball Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me Caught beneath the landslide In a champagne supernova in the sky Someday you will find me Caught beneath the landslide In a champagne supernova Champagne soup and over in the sky. 
That's right, Oasis and Champagne Supernova. That's our uh, Rob Bell update music. I think I uh, switched back and forth between the, them and um, and the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, so the uh, headline from the uh, Christian Post reads, Rob Bell speaks with Oprah Winfrey on Super Soul Sunday. This is written by Nicola Menzi of the Christian Post, and um, here's what the story says. A controversial Christian author and former megachurch pastor, Rob Bell, sits down with Oprah Winfrey for an interview in an upcoming episode of her spirituality theme program, Super Soul Sunday. Bell's latest book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God, has been listed as the first recommended title in Oprah's Super Soulful Book of the Month Club. Oh, good night. Yeah, that should tell you something about Oprah Winfrey's so-called spirituality. The woman has no clue what the truth is. But we continue. According to a publicist for Owen's Super Soul Sunday program, Winfrey's interview with Bell will air on November 3rd at 11 a.m. with the title, Oprah and Rob Bell, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. Oh, good. It's job security for me. Gives me something to talk about on November 3rd. The Emmy Award-winning series Super Soul Sunday delivers a thought-provoking, eye-opening, and inspiring block of programming designed to help viewers awaken to their best selves and discover a deeper connection to the world around them, reads a press release from Winfrey's uh, network. It's In its announcement... On the new season lineup, Own noted that Bell would be among Super Soul Sunday guests that included Anne Lamott, Jack Cornfield, and Stephen Pressfield, and others. Winfrey has written has written on Oprah.com about her time talking with Bell, whose book, whose books she said opened her heart and mind. <laughs> to what error, lies, pantheism? I mean, serious quote. When Rob Bell, pastor, best-selling author, provocative thinker, recently joined me on the show, we talked for two and a half hours and I could have kept going, wrote Winfrey. Quote, the ideas Rob sets forth in his book Love Wins and What We Talk About When We Talk About God opened my heart and mind. People like him are the reason I set out to build own in the first place, to be able to gather a global community of like-minded seekers. Seek, what are they seeking? Lies, false doctrine, you know, religious speculations. You know, they're not seeking the truth. <clears throat> the post uh, titled What Oprah Knows for Sure About Sp- Spirituality was accompanied by a picturesque photo of Bell and Winfrey deep in discussion with the uh, media mogul grasping a copy of What We Talk About When We Talk About God. Bell states in What We Talk About When We Talk About God that he wrote the book because, quote, there's a growing sense that when it comes to God, we're at the end of one era and the start of another. An entire mode of understanding and talking about God is dying as something new is being birthed. Well, that's weird because God's word um, talks about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Rob Bell sitting here hoping, hoping, oh, we can finally get rid of the, the historic Orthodox Christian faith and maybe some something new is giving birth you know, to right now and we can stop talking about God in the category of sin and, and, and repentance and forgiveness of sins and propitiatory sacrifices and penal substitution and hell. No, we can talk about 
we could talk about new things, you know, like, you know, the pantheism and becoming one with the universe and stuff like that. In the ex- <laughs> in explaining the main point of what we talk about when we talk about God, Bell uh, says in a book trailer, God is not behind us, dragging us backwards into some primitive regressive state. God has always been ahead of us, pulling us forward into a greater and greater peace, integration and wholeness and love. And to which I would say, really, you know that for sure? (laughs) How do you know that? Um, In in her praise of the book, Winfrey said Bell was shaking up the way we think about God and religion. Well, of course he's shaking it up. He's shaking it up the way the devil shook up Adam and Eve's thinking regarding God. And when he asked the question, did God really say? Bell does the same thing. I mean, practically the same question. Winfrey then added, uh, when I first started reading it, I was highlighting my favorite passages, but then I realized, what's the point? I've marked every page. It's just, it just wowed me. And in the book, Bell explains that God is and always has been with us, for us, and ahead of us, and then explores how we can really absorb this knowledge into our everyday lives to become more connected to spirit. My question is, did Rob Bell, you know, walk on water? Did he die and rise for our sins? Where does he get the authority to make these things up about God would be my question. But the story then continues. Glenn Kreider, the professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, concluded in his review of what we talk about when we talk about God in May, quote, Fans of Bell will likely resonate with this book. His critics will likely suspect that there is a great deal he is not saying and will be more skeptical, suggesting that fans and critics should read the book jointly and discuss what they find to be its strengths and weaknesses, Kreider added. The book is helpful for people on the fringes of Christianity, but even church and ministry leaders might find their view of God enlarged. On the other hand, Dr. Michael Kruger, the president and professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote that he found Bell's book to be, quote, really just spiritualism with a Christian veneer and not about the God of Christianity. Kruger concluded in his May review of what we talk about when we talk about God, it's a book that would quite fit well on Oprah's list of favorite books. Other Christian figures uh, featured on Oprah Winfrey's own program include uh, Nick uh, Vujicic, uh, uh, Pastor Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, and T.D. Jakes. I mean, just that lineup should tell you something about uh, Oprah Winfrey's biblical discernment. In other words, she doesn't have any, and true Christians should not be going to Oprah and her spiritual gurus for any help in understanding the truth regarding the one true God who truly exists, what Christianity teaches, and what sound Christian doctrine is. Oprah's spirituality will ultimately send her and her fans who buy into it to hell. Time for a false prophet update.
Yeah, that's right. That's Fleetwood Mac and uh, Little Lies. And <clears throat> that's our false prophet update music. I don't think we've ever used that, but I've just plugged that in there. Uh, so here's the question I have for you. Uh, according to the Bible, not according to you, according to me, or according to that theologian or that theologian, but according to Scripture, who is a true prophet and who is a false prophet? Where would we go to find out what the criteria are for true prophet and false prophet? The answer to this question, by the way, is twofold. We will go to the book of Deuteronomy, and we will begin at Deuteronomy chapter 13, and then we will end in Deuteronomy 18, and then we're going to test uh, a man who claimed to have received prophetic utterances from God the Holy Spirit some time ago, and um, those, well, what the Holy Spirit said hasn't come true. And you decide for yourself what that makes this person. Okay, so here's Deuteronomy 13. I'll start at verse 1. Here's what God the Holy Spirit um, commanded Moses to write. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Now, see, now here's the deal. Just because a prophet is capable of performing miracles doesn't mean he or she is a true prophet or prophetess. According to scripture here, if, if, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul. Okay, so the idea here is this. Now, we do not have false prophets within the Christian church who are going to rise up and crassly say, oh, well, now that I've performed the sign or wonder for you here in the church, let's go worship Baal. Baal has fallen out of favor with most, at least publicly. And as a result of that, what we can then glean from this today is that, you know, chasing after other gods would then fall into the category of idolatry. And so the details about the God that they're proclaiming become fair game to determine as to whether or not this, this prophet is a true prophet or false prophet. Are they saying that, you know, are they able to perform miracles in the name of the God of the Bible, but that then turn around and say, oh, but the God of the Bible is, uh, you know, is Elohim and he lives on planet Kolob and he was once a man like we are. And he became a God becoming, by becoming obedient to his God. Well, that's a false god, okay? And that's the false god of Mormonism, by the way. Um, so, you know, or you can, you know, it, it, having us follow after, you know, a, a modalistic god or, you know, a, a, you know, just the, the thing is, is that about idolatry today that you got to keep in mind is that idolaters today are really, really lazy, super lazy, really lazy, so lazy that uh, they they don't even come up with names for their own concocted deities. They just grab the name Jesus and slap it onto their own God. So you got to test now. Here's the next test. Uh, if we're gonna look, at, we're gonna look at uh, Levit, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I'm gonna read this in context, starting at 15, so you can see the bigger, wider context here. Here's what uh, Moses was commanded to write by God: The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is him you sh uh, to him you shall listen, just as you desired 
of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire uh, anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded and, and all that I have commanded him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. I'm going to pause right there. Now, this is a prophecy regarding Jesus. Who's the prophet that God raised up like Moses? Answer, it's Jesus. So, in God's going to hold is going to require it of people who will not listen to him. That being the case, though, we continue with verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, that's, now this is important. In the theocracy of ancient Israel, being a false prophet was a capital crime. Um, and they didn't put you on death row. They killed you on the spot. So who then is a false prophet? Verse 21. And if you say in your heart, well, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you need not be afraid of him. In other words, in order for somebody to be a true prophet, a true prophet according to God, hearing, you know, claiming to speak, you know, to be receiving direct revelation from God Almighty, in order for that person to be a true prophet, since God doesn't stutter and God doesn't lie, if he says something that's, you know, that God has spoken to him is going to come to pass and it doesn't come to pass, that person is a false prophet. The batting average for all true prophets is 1000, not 400, not 300, not 200. They must they their batting average must be perfect. That being the case, we're going to test to see if uh, Todd Bentley is a true or false prophet. Now, just so you know, I'm looking at video here of Todd Bentley speaking at the, uh, the that airport church in Toronto, Canada, okay, where the, you know, the holy laughter revival broke out. That should tell you something. But the Todd Bentley I'm looking at is a much younger Todd Bentley. This Todd Bentley has hair. This Todd Bentley has sideburns. This Todd Bentley doesn't have his arms all tatted up and his neck all tatted up. This is Todd Bentley tattoo-free, if you would. So this goes back a ways, goes way back. This is vintage Todd Bentley. And let's listen to what Todd Bentley, the vintage Todd Bentley there at that airport church in Toronto, Canada, has to say about a, a you know a, a a revival that was supposed to break out in Finland. Here we go. Ha. Send them back full of fire. Whoa. Now, now I, I I went from Australia after that in the spirit, and I went to Europe, and I was on a ferry boat going from Eastern Europe, Estonia. I was on a ferry boat, and I went into Finland. And the Lord told me, he goes, a great revival is about to break out in Finland. It'll be, I mean, the con listen. 
He said, he said, the conversions in Finland will be like Finney. The conversions in Finland will be like Finney. And I, I literally, I'll tell you the honest truth. My eyes were open. I was on the ferry boat. I was going into Finland and I saw um, almost like an atomic explosion of glory come down over Finland. And it started spreading into other places, missionaries going out of Finland into Eastern Europe, Estonia, Latvia, other countries. And I want to pray for somebody right now from Finland right now. Yeah, so uh, according to Todd Bentley, back before he had tattoos, when he still had hair, um, uh, you know, this vintage f- uh, film footage from the airport church there in, Tor- in Toronto, Canada, um, uh, he said the Lord told him that a great revival was about to break out in Finland. Well, this is awkward because um, there has been no great revivals breaking out in Finland. Hasn't happened. Hmm. Let me read that passage again from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. But that, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how shall we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, that's what Todd Bentley was doing. If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. Hmm. Let me back that up again, and uh, let's let's listen closely. And again, this is vintage Todd Bentley. This is going back more than five years. Let's listen again. Back full of fire. Now, now I, I I went from Australia after that in the spirit, and I went to Europe. And I was on a ferry boat going from Eastern Europe, Estonia. I was on a ferry boat and I went into Finland. And the Lord told me, he goes, a great revival is about to break out in Finland. It'll be, I mean, the con- listen. Yeah, a great revival. It was about to break out in Finland and it didn't happen. Hmm. Well, let's just put it this way. That means, according to the biblical test of a prophet... Todd Bentley is a false prophet, not a true prophet. He's a false prophet. He's somebody who Scripture says is speaking presumptuously. Somebody Christians should not and ought not listen to. In fact, had Todd Bentley given this false prophecy back in the day in ancient Israel... Well, then you know what would have happened to him. He would have been discovered to be a false prophet. And being a false prophet in the theocracy of God is blasphemy. And blasphemy, well, back in the day, was a capital crime. So do you think somebody who's guilty of a capital crime in the theocracy of Israel should be preaching and teaching anywhere in Christ's church? And, you know, should Christians be listening to somebody like that? The answer is absolutely not. He is a wolf. He is a false prophet. He is not a sound teacher. He is somebody to be marked and avoided. And know this, God himself will make sure that Todd Bentley gets what he deserves for blaspheming and prophesying in the name of the Lord, but not true words that he was hearing from God, stuff he was making up. He was speaking presumptuously. 
All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Have you ever wondered uh, who is Patricia King's pastor? Well, you won't need to wonder anymore after uh, listening to this. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, uh, Todd Bentley is a false prophet. So is Patricia King. So is everybody in that whole group. You don't want to be getting any of your theology from them. That's like eating out of a dumpster. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, we're in the middle of our bake sale right now um, in order to make up for the summer shortfall. We always seem to have a summer shortfall. Um, and so you can uh, purchase a the 2013 Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt. It comes in two colors, blue and red. And the way you purchase them is visit uh, uh, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, purchase your T-shirt today in order to uh, help us uh, make up our budgetary shortfall for the summer. Now, and uh, let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. So have you, like me, ever wondered who is Patricia King's pastor? And with kind of the hope that, you know, her pastor would rein her in. Yeah, that's not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, let me explain. Uh, The reason why that's not going to happen is because you're about to listen to a uh, segment from Patricia King's Everlasting Love program, which airs on XPmedia.com. And uh, you're going to hear her interview 
her pastor. Now I got to warn you, this this next uh, segment is going to be short. So it's going to you know I went really long in the first segment here, and so what we're going to do is we'll we'll play the Patricia King stuff. I will I will respond accordingly. I might even play a little bit of a uh, of a sermon uh, preached by Patricia King's pastor to kind of give you the idea of what's going on there, and then we'll go into our second break. So it it, it seems like it's going to be you know like there's going to be two commercials almost back to back. That's just because I went really long in the first segment, but. Anyway, here's Patricia King interviewing her pastor about um, breakthrough. Listen in. Hi, my name's Patricia King, and I'm glad that you've joined us for Everlasting Love. Do you need a breakthrough in your life? Well, today we have my pastor, Dr. Michael Maiden. Dr. Michael, it's so wonderful to have you here, and we're going to talk about the subject of breakthrough. And um, I love that topic, and I've actually sat under some of your sermons on this uh, series, actually, at church on Sunday mornings. You've sometimes taught on series concerning breakthroughs. I'm just on the edge of my seat. You know, I just love it. I love the word that's on the inside of you. But let's believe together today for our viewers, anyone, who needs a breakthrough in any area to have a miracle breakthrough today. Mm, Yeah, if you need a breakthrough, you you can have a miracle breakthrough. Now, her uh, pastor is Dr. Michael Maiden, and he teaches at Church of the Nations in Maricopa, Arizona. So that kind of gives you an idea of where she goes to church. Well, let's listen as her pastor tells us about the importance of breakthrough. But um, share your heart on the subject. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Patricia, I want to uh, commend you because God's used you around the world to bring breakthrough in places in the in the Far East. Yeah, no, um, God has not used Patricia King to bring any kind of breakthroughs. If anything, the devil has used Patricia King to put people in spiritual bondage to false doctrine and false prophecy and false signs and wonders and to deceive people. So the fact that you, Dr. Michael Maiden, her own pastor, can't actually see what she really is is actually troubling. In Canada, in our state, in Maricopa, there's a breakthrough here in this little suburban town called Maricopa because you're here. Aww. And the breakthrough that's here that's happening in other people's life happened because it was in you. The Bible oh, says Jesus. one of the names of God, I, I heard you preach on this, says he's the breaker. He's the God of the breakthrough. And, and I think you heard Patricia preach on this and you didn't rebuke her for preaching because she's a woman and the Bible forbids women from doing that. Okay, yeah, we we got your theology dialed in. That we can convince people that, yeah, God can do anything. He he, he can break through anything. But the secret of breakthrough is that God needs a breakthrough partner. He needs someone else. Really, the secret of breakthrough is that God needs a breakthrough partner? Where in the Bible does it say any of that? There's planet to break through. And when we break through, we can help other people break through. When we break through the stronghold over our family, we can Come pull on. our, we can pray our whole family out. When we break through the stronghold in the church, we can seek God to heal the church and use the Come church on. to heal the city. When we break through the stronghold in government or arts or media or business. So the things we conquer at the bottom of the mountain, we can rule over at the top of the mountain. Ah, seven mountains mandate, new apostolic reformation kind of stuff, dominionism. Mm, that's another false thing, too. Wow. The things that we surrender to or the things we bow to, the things that we compromise with, 
in, in any part of life at the beginning, we end up serving at the end. So breakthrough is, 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 is an awesome thing. It's the time for God's people to break through. It is. And it's our inheritance in the Lord. It's our portion in Him. He didn't die to make us failures. He died to make us successful. Really, I thought He died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Where in the Bible does it say Christ died so that we can be successful? I mean, by worldly sin, really, where does the Bible say that? I, mean, I can tell you, I can take you to passages where it says Christ died for our sins. Christ died to reconcile us to the Father. Christ, God laid on him the iniquity of us all and the, and the punishment that brought us peace with God. I can point you to all those passages. I can't point you to any passages that say, well, Christ died so that we can become successful. What does that mean? And so whatever we're facing, I always say, if you don't quit, you win. Yeah. And uh, so, but you, over the many years of your faithfulness, you know, in walking with the Lord, but also in ministry, have learned principles of breakthrough and you've exercised those principles and you've, you've seen the creation of breakthrough where it didn't look like there was anything possible, you know, to bring about a breakthrough. So can you share some of those insights with us today? Oh, absolutely. In, in, in Mark chapter 2, there's a great story of four guys. They're carrying their friend who's paralyzed. Okay, now, just as you're listening to this little snippet here of um, Dr. Michael Maiden, this is Patricia King's, quote, pastor, um, and his handling of Mark chapter 2, just think back. If you haven't already done so, then go and listen to uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson's lecture that we played on Wednesday regarding this exact same text, okay? I think it was in the second part where the Jesus did that, well, that was the name of the, that particular lecture. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson just handled that text brilliantly, Keep this in the in the back of your head as you're listening to Patricia King's quote, Pastor, tell us what Mark chapter 2 is all about, because I think you're going to find that uh, one person is doing a good job of rightly handling the text, and the other person is utterly clueless as to what this text is really about. So we continue. To Christ to be healed. And they get to the house, and the house is so filled with people, in fact, overflowing with people. Every window is full, every door is full. So instead of going home and say, oh, there's no parking space for me, they climb up on the roof. They carry their friend on a bed on the roof. They tear the roof open. And the Bible says it like this. And when they broke through, they let down the man on ropes to Christ. So here's Christ. He's teaching in the room. All of a sudden, hay's falling down, and yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, the sun opens up, and there's... Look, it's a breakthrough. They broke through the roof. See? That's the theology of breakthrough. <laughs> How's the phrase go? Smashing my head. Yeah. There's a, there's a skylight in that room because those guys broke through. Wow. In life, there's always obstacles before fulfillment, before destiny, before dreams are realized. We have mm-hmm. to have the breakthrough spirit that says, I'm not going to quit. And whatever, what? whatever it takes yeah. to get to Christ, I'm willing to do it. Yeah. When the Syrophoenician woman came to Christ and he ignored her at first, then he told her it wasn't her time because it was the, not the time of the Gentiles. She got on her face and worshipped. She said, help me, Lord. She broke through. She got on her face and worshipped. Where in that text about the Syrophoenician woman does it say she got on her face and worshipped? Jesus called her a dog. Worship changes the environment. Yes. Worship changes the outcome. Worshippers get what they should. Yeah, again, she didn't worship. <sighs> shouldn't get worshipers go where they shouldn't go. So in life we can break through, and, and, and part of it is just not quitting. 
persevering, believing God. The woman, the, the, the Shimonite woman whose son died. So instead of saying, oh, my son's died, she's, every encounter she had with yes. the person, she said, it is well. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. She went and got the, the anointing of God, brought it back to her house. And that anointing resurrected her son. Wow. And I think just what you're saying there is about expectation. If you have expectation for breakthrough, because you have a choice. I mean, when things look bad, of course, that is your that is your your soil for a breakthrough, really. When there's a challenge, when things have gone wrong, where right. it looks like there's walls everywhere, no no way to find your breakthrough. That is your environment for one. Yeah. And so you have a choice whether you're going to expect a breakthrough or expect defeat. Yeah. And so your expectation is really, yeah. really important. And, that, and that's why this Father Heart revival that we're experiencing of God's love, how that you are one of the leading world voices of that is so important because we need to feel God's for us. That he's saying, go, you can do it, son. You can yes. do it, daughter. That he's encouraging us. He's motivating us. He's strengthening us. He's guiding us. He's empowering us. He's, he's protecting us. If we, if we know God is for us, who can be against us? And part of the breakthrough that happens in life is what's inside of us is tested. Is, do we really believe God is for us? Do we really believe that we can succeed? Jacob was left alone. He wrestles with yeah. God all night long. And the angel said to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob said, yeah. I won't let go until you bless yeah. me. That's what a breakthrough his spirit takes. Right. You have to say to the promises of God, by his stripes I'm healed. I'm not going to let go of that That's promise right. until Come on. I'm healed. My family will be saved. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said it. Claim it over your family. Yeah, no matter what things no matter, look like. No matter how dysfunctional, yeah. how wild the kids yeah, it are. Matter. God's how, word is. how goofy the marriage is. Yeah. You stand for your marriage. You stand for your city. So a breakthrough spirit is someone who doesn't quit and doesn't give up. So, so rather than praying humbly to God and petitioning him, no, you're demanding and creating with your words and all oh, this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh -huh. yeah I'm not God, and there's no way I'm going to do that. Jesus, when he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Very different spirit, if you would. We continue though. So God's our breakthrough, God, but we're in His image. Yes, come on. And we have the DNA of Christ. We have champion DNA in us. Come on. And so whatever's born of God overcomes the world, and so we're made to be champion DNA within us. This is kind of like. And Joel Osteen meets the new apostolic reformation. World overcomers, world yes. shakers and history makers. So God wants us to break through. And when we do, we look so much like him. Yeah. You know, I know some of your story, which is fun. Yeah. I'm, oh, man, I'm about to vomit here. Uh, let me play for you a little bit of a sermon preached by Patricia King's pastor. And the name of it is, You Are God's champions this just give you a flavor of what this guy's theology is about and you can see that patricia king and her pastor well they have so much in common raising two boys my boys tim and matthew were uh, uh sports stars they were great basketball players all state and champions so so often you know they get trophies and uh there's like one song you play for you know w winning a trophy is uh, called we are the champion so before I play that song, I want you to stand back up, find seven people. I want you to tell them this. This is the title of my message, and after this, I'm going to play a song for you. Stand up, find seven people, 
and tell them you are God's champion. Tell them that. Um, so find seven people and tell them you are God's champion. I thought the champion of God was Jesus Christ. He is God's champion. He's our champion. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the archegon of our faith. Um, you're not. I'm not. So, I mean, this is, I mean, starting off a church service like this is just absolutely blasphemous. It doesn't put the focus on Christ. It puts it on you. Let's listen a little more, though. Paid my dues time after time. Here's a song for you. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime. You're playing this in church? And bad mistakes. I've made a few. I've had my Unbelievable. Yeah, because I just love singing to Freddie Mercury in church. And yet, Scripture tells us that Jesus is God's champion. You want an example of, you know, hymns? that talk about Christ being the champion rather than ourselves. You familiar with this one? Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown the virgin son, the, the God incarnate born, whose arms whose arm those crimson trophies won, which now his brow adorn. Fruit of the mystic rose, yet of that rose the stem, the root whence mercy ever flows, the babe of Bethlehem. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hand inside, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bend their wondering eyes at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave, and rose victorious in the strife for those that he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall, Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. When we, when I go to church, that's who we sing about. That's who my pastor preaches about. That's who Christianity is about. He is the champion, not us. And, <clears throat> well, this is Patricia King's pastor's idea of a rich, an enriching and, and 
you know, a good sermon to build up the people in church. It's to sing about how they are the champions. I mean, seriously, can you imagine going to church and singing this about yourself? Who are you worshiping? Yourself. That's who Patricia King worships. And where'd she learn it from? Well, she learned it from all of the crazy churches that she's been a part of. And her current pastor is no better than any of the previous pastors she's had in the past. This is a woman who is... This isn't Christian doctrine. This isn't Christian theology. This isn't what God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to believe, teach, and confess. This is utter and complete narcissistic nonsense. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end off with a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Genesis 6 and the story of the flood. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. 
Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Going to end off the week with a good sermon. That, that hour was just utter nonsense. But let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today. Sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke on Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the sermon we will be listening to is entitled Judgment and Mercy. The text is Genesis chapter 6, the story of the flood. Pastor Charmley just does a brilliant job here. Law, gospel, sin, grace, reading the biblical text, exegeting the biblical text, finding the primary points from that text to preach upon, and then preaching Christ from it. Oh, it's just really, really good. So, in fact, I can't even do it justice describing it to you, so I'm going to not even try to describe anymore. Let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley and his sermon on Genesis chapter 6, entitled Judgment and Mercy. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Genesis and chapter 6, Genesis Chapter 6 Moses has been speaking of the early history of the earth and of the generations of men who lived after Adam and has spoken of both the continuance of the grace of God and the continuance of death that all about one Enoch who walked with God who was not because God took him all other than him died. Now he comes to Noah. So Genesis chapter 6, 
Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man for ever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, its width fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth, destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, that you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And we trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We have at the beginning of this chapter this dreadful declaration of the sinfulness of man. How it was indeed that man corrupted his way on the earth and God was grieved. 
by human sin and purposed a terrible judgment to come upon the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of that darkness of judgment we have that brilliant light of the grace of God. God first looked at the earth back in Genesis chapter 1. We read Genesis 1, 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. What a difference then. What a difference. In chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He saw that it was good, but now he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The human wickedness takes that which is good and twists it. Sin corrupts that which God made perfect. And a holy and a good God comes face to face with an unholy and a wicked creation. With unholy and wicked men. And so we see in this chapter first of all the reality, the awful reality of sin. Then we see Noah, the servant of the Lord. And finally we see the great salvation that God provided from his wrath and his judgment. We see the sin, the servant, and the great salvation. So we see first of all the sin, the sin of man. Now, Verse six has it, verse two of chapter six has occasioned a great deal of comment in history. Several times we've had on these the church away day questions asked concerning this very verse. Who are the sons of God? Well, there are various arguments that have been made, various positions. There are those. The old Jewish tradition is these are fallen angels, these are demons. But of course, angels, demons, have no bodies. Bodiless spirits cannot procreate with embodied humans. The other argument, the other thing that said is this is the, the godly line, the line of Seth. The trouble is that the term sons of God is never used of the godly line in the Old Testament. They're never called the sons of God. Another argument has been made that these are kings. Kings in the ancient Near East often claimed divine descent, but again, not in the Old Testament. Some have even suggested that these are kings, human kings, possessed by demons. We know that people can be. Jesus often dealt with people who were demon-possessed, casting out demons. But again, the term sons of God is never used of demon-possessed men. It is one of those verses that's difficult because there's very little in the context to explain what this means. But if we go to the New Testament... And to the words of the Lord Jesus. 
We have some little understanding of what was going on at the time of the flood. Coming from one who was there and one who knows all things perfectly. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 verse 38, read from verse 37, As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know, until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The emphasis is not upon some strange wickedness taking place in days past, but upon the fact that they were living ordinary, fairly normal lives, marrying, giving in marriage, without one thought for God and his holiness. We are told that Adam was the son of God, so he is described in the Gospel. And those who descended from Adam, man made in the image of God, they too are sons of God. Naturally speaking, mind you, not in any gracious sense, but sons of God simply in the sense of descendants of God. It's notable that the Hebrew has no word for grandsons or great-grandsons. It only has the word sons, as it has no word for grandfather, but only the word father. And so the sons of God are those who are descended from God in that Adam was the son of God by creation. So the sons of God, the human males made in God's image, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. They didn't think about the character of the hearts of the women they married, didn't think about anything beyond getting the most beautiful women they could for themselves, didn't think about God's creation of marriage, but they simply saw it as a matter of getting the most beautiful women as prizes for their own. They took wives themselves of all whom they chose. They married they were marrying and giving in marriage, even as Jesus said. Simply man ignoring God, man building himself up. The essence of sin is that temptation that the tempter suggested to Eve, you will be as God. And so man says, I will be as God, I will not look to any but myself. Is it any surprise then that those men who were men of renown, verse 4, were mighty men, warriors, fighting one another to take one another's wives and property, and were celebrated not for the good things they did for others, but for the piles of corpses that they laid low with their own swords. that the earth was filled with violence as every man looked to himself and the strength of his own arm. There were the giants in the earth in those days, men who glorified themselves, who gloried in their physical strength, physical power, physical sight, like Goliath of Gath in later years who defied the living God. 
And so these wicked men fought and warred with one another. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A world, a society full of self-promoting, self-glorifying men. A world full of men who lived only to imagine evil against one another and then rise and carry it out. Full of their plots and their plans and God was not in all their thoughts. But they were in God's thoughts. Man says, where is God? God is in the heavens and has done whatever he pleases. Man says, I cannot see God, but God replies, I see you. God looks down upon the earth and beholds the children of men to see if there are any that do good. If there were any who sought after righteousness, he found that they were altogether corrupt and altogether evil. And they thought that because he gave them long lifespans, long continuance on the earth, and did not strike them with judgment the moment they disobeyed his word, they said, as fools in their hearts, there is no God. But God looks down from heaven, and God's patience is not inexhaustible. The judge of all the earth is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful, but he is not weak. He is the creator and he is the judge. And so God looked down upon the earth and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. God is not a man that he should repent. But God is not without an equivalent to feeling to what we call emotions God is grieved at the sinfulness of man for sin is not merely an offence against some arbitrary code now they've recently changed some of the speed limits up on, on the D road on the A500 and whereas it used to be quite legal to do 70 from the just after the Trentham roundabout round to the roundabout for the M6 now it isn't now it's a 50 limit all the way that's an arbitrary law there is nothing in the in the constitution of the creation that says that the speed limit on that part of the A500 has to be 50 miles an hour or 70 for that matter that's a human law that man can change. The law of God is not like that. Because God's law is a reflection of who God is. God gave to Israel on Sinai ten commandments, ten words. And he could not have given a different ten words. He commands faithfulness because God is faithful. 
He commands love because God is love. He could not have commanded any other words because his law is a transcription of who he is. Therefore, sin is the transgression of the law, remember. And because God's law is a transcription of who he is, then sin is an offence against God himself, his very person, his very being. When man says, I will not keep this law of God, he is saying, I wish that God were other than he is. I will not have this God. Sin is the transgression of the law and therefore is a personal affront to God. A slap, if you like, in God's face. Because God's law is God's own character. His divine personality is described in that law. And so God is grieved when man disobeys the law because that is man striking at God. And so God declares his judgment. For you see, if man, a sinful man, were to have his way, he would do away with God. And he would destroy the entire universe. Sin left to itself would destroy everything. And therefore sin must be judged. God must punish sin. And God declared, I will destroy man. God declares his judgment. His justice will come in the end. And just as he judged the old world in water, so he shall judge the world that now is. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, verse 2 he says, verse 3 rather, he says, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and say, where is the promise of his coming? For since your fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willfully forget, that the, by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, he has not forgotten, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a judgment to come, a wrath to come. A judgment by fire that will overtake this world in God's due time. So we see sin and the judgment that it brings, but then we come to the servant of God, to our text again, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The severity of God is spoken, that we may see also the compassion, the goodness, the grace of God for sinners. The great declarations of Scripture, but God, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, grace is simply God's undeserved favour. We note that verse 9 begins with, this is the genealogy. That means that verse 9 is not to be taken as explaining what verse 8 means. It's an entirely separate sentence. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't that Noah was deserving of God's love, but that God in his mercy delivered Noah and took Noah and made him a godly man. For grace is undeserved. If Noah had been a deserving man, he would not have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He wouldn't have needed grace if he had been deserving only the undeserving need grace, and Noah found grace. And so you and I, we do not need to say, well, Noah was described as a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I'm not like that. How can God have mercy upon me? Ah, uh, Noah was like that because God had mercy on him. To say, this is what Noah was like, therefore God had mercy, is to get things entirely the wrong way around. Noah was just and holy because God was gracious to him. God looked upon this man and gave to him the grace that he needed, gave the deliverance that he needed. And so God took this man and made of him a servant of the Lord, one who is described as just, righteous even as God is righteous. He made God's judgments the guide to his feet. He made the law of God, the character of God, the rule of his life, to walk according to God's character, perfect in his generation. doesn't mean he was sinless. The word perfect here is perfect in the sense of complete. Perfect in the sense that he wasn't a hypocrite. He didn't simply profess godliness. He didn't simply profess to worship God, but he did worship God. Noah was the same man, if I may be permitted the anachronism, the same man on Monday he was on Sunday, as it were. Or rather, in those days, be the same man on Sunday as he was on Saturday. The same man when he was engaged in the worship of God as he was when he was engaged 
in his daily tasks. His life was all of a piece, complete. There was nothing missing from it. Noah walked with God. We are tempted sometimes to think of the Old Testament saints' lives as being legalistic. But actually the phrase that describes Old Testament religion is this. It is to walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. It was a life of divine fellowship. He was much in prayer. He was with God, praying, meditating upon the words that God had spoken to him. Noah walked with God. And Noah, Noah had not the advantages we have. The Lord Jesus come and God has walked with man. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God has spoken the scriptures. What Bible Noah had would have been very small. Very little. Some of the, the pieces that were used to compose our scripture, some words that God spoke to him. And most of all, he had not the vision of Jesus that we have, but only some glimpses of the one to come. But Noah walked with God. For fellowship with God is the nature of Christianity. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son by the Holy Spirit. And God told him of the judgment he would bring upon the earth. The end of all flesh has come before me. God spoke to the man who listened to him, who walked with him. The servant of God, the man of grace. And so we come to the great salvation. For God tells men of the judgment to come, not to terrify them into despair but that they may know to flee from it. And therefore he provides not only a word of judgment, but he provides a way of grace. He provides a salvation, a refuge into which men may run and be safe. In the Second World War, when London was daily bombed from the skies, Men and women sought refuge in the, the deep tube stations, but even those were not safe. Those who were fooled by some of the lives that are just under the surface in a couple of cases, people were killed. Even purpose-built bomb shelters could not protect always against a direct hit. But still the idea of the bomb shelter is that you run into it and you are safe from the fires that rage ahead, that rage overhead, from the explosions bursting all around on the rubble. But man's shelters cannot be perfect. God provides a perfect shelter, a perfect salvation, a perfect deliverance. He was going to, be, to bring a great flood upon that earth that was. And so he ordered Noah to build a boat. 
a great ship, something the size of one of our modern oil tankers or container ships, massive great thing. Of course, unlike our modern ships, it wasn't going to be launched. God was to bring the water to it. Noah didn't have to bring it to the water. And he made this great, he ordered this great ship to be built a fitting salvation from a judgment by water. But of course, there is no construction, no building that can save from the wrath to come. But there is a man who is a shelter from the storm. There is the man, Christ Jesus, in whom we are to trust. And all those who are in Christ, who believe on his name, who are joined to him by faith. For them, he says, because I live, you shall live also. The Apostle Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now those who have therefore the life of God, who believe in the Lord Jesus, cannot perish, even at the end of all created things, even when the fire of God's judgment shall dissolve this earth. Even then, when the creation is on a blaze, those who are in Christ shall be safe forever in that perfect ark, that perfect saviour. The word ark does not normally mean a ship in the Bible. It is a chest. If you go in, when I was growing up in Norfolk, I remember the parish church, we had this great chest at the front enormous medieval iron-bound chest, great thick lid to it, and a great lock, and the point of this chest was in days past, it was where they kept the valuables. The ark is where God keeps his valuables. Those saved by his grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom God keeps his valuables. His people, those who are his by gracious, gracious choice, gracious election. The perfect ark who delivers. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. All those who were saved by the ark were saved by the obedience of one. By one man's obedience, many were saved. By one man's disobedience, death came into the world. And by the obedience of the one man, Jesus of Nazareth, life comes to all who believe on his name. By the obedience of the one man, Christ Jesus, so the Apostle Paul tells us, so the Bible says, there is life and salvation. It was by believing, by trusting to Noah's obedience, that his family was saved. It is by trusting in Christ's obedience that we shall be delivered from the wrath to come, trusting in his work, that he was obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. That he gave himself for you and for me. That we might have everlasting life by him. This is the salvation that God gives. This is the ark of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the saviour of mankind. God is holy. And God is merciful. God is the judge and God is the saviour. And God tells us of the wrath to come. The day is coming. When God shall in justice judge the earth. Oh, man does not like to hear that. Man says, why should God judge me? Because God has made you, he shall judge you. The criminal says to the judge, why should you judge me, condemn me for what I have done? It matters not what the criminal has done. They always say that. The answer is because of the law. Because God is the ultimate creator. God is the one who has made us. God has the right to do what he pleases. Has not the pot of power over the clay? If you go down past Emma Bridgewater when they're throwing out the wasters, those pots that have collapsed in the kilns are useless and you see them smashing them to pieces outside, do you think those wasters have any right to say to the potter, you cannot smash me, I am perfectly beautiful in my own way. They have no right. Has not the potter power over the clay to do what he will? But God in his great mercy draws near to us and he calls and he says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he takes he takes the cracked pot and he makes it whole again by his mighty power. And there is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you and I, we seek the grace of God. Only by the grace of God can we live. But the grace of God is rich and free. And in his grace he calls, Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. In his grace he says, Whoever will may come. Come unto me, he says, come unto me, and find that full, that free salvation in the man Christ Jesus, the one who is altogether perfect, altogether just, who is able to save unto the uttermost all those who come to God by him. God punishes sin, but he has sent a saviour from sin. Whoever believes on that Saviour shall not perish in that universal wrath, but have eternal life here and now, and for all eternity. Let us then cast ourselves on him, whether for the first time, or the hundred and first time, or the thousand and first time, and trust him, trust him, the Saviour, Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm, mm, that was a good sermon. What did you think? 
love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>